Welcome to Urban Impact Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Anouk Gupta, who is the founder and CEO of Be More, a company dedicated to unleashing human capital by breaking bias. Anouk is an expert in mindfulness and unconscious bias, and with a background in philosophy as well as law, he developed Be More's methodology through multidisciplinary research that lasted over a decade. He has managed to bring this methodology to over 15,000 professionals nationwide in sectors like healthcare, finance, law, technology, and government. In this episode, we discussed how mindfulness can help heal communities from the damaging effects of unconscious bias. Anu, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about your story? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to reconnect and being here with you. Um, so my story is a little complicated. I have always been kind of searching for my passion and purpose. And it's always been driven by service and wanting to do something that would, you know, help people live more fully and at the same time create more equality and justice. Um, so I started out being kind of pre-med in college. I studied biology and chemistry, um, but then, and I was doing quite well and I was on my path to going into medicine, but soon realized that I wanted to also explore cultures. So after college, I lived abroad. I lived in Myanmar. I started my first nonprofit there, um, worked in South Korea. And also I got my master's in um, human development at Cambridge where I studied, you know, various different disciplines like psychology and anthropology to really understand kind of systemic ways our societies are built and how people, human, operate in those systems. So it's very much like what I was studying as a pre-med student and how the body works, but also now thinking about the body of cities, the bodies of corporations and how all that operates. So I was slated to go into a PhD program, but, you know, my wise advisor at the time was like, I think you're too much of an activist to be an academic. Um, this is going to be a very unfulfilling life for you. So what I'd recommend you do is go back to your country. So I was at Cambridge in the UK uh, and go to law school. So for me, as someone who has no lawyers in his family and kind, kind of was the first person who was not a doctor, it's like, what does that mean? Um, but I did go to law school and that's where we met actually <laughs> when I was in law school. And um, and I went to law school wanting to really understand how systems work. And that's what took me there. And in law school, I kind of shifted my focus from kind of international development and international human development to more domestic work. Um, just because I, as I was working on a lot of, you know, extracurricular activities, I began to notice a lot of very persistent racial disparities in our society, um, whether it was going to prisons or courtrooms, and even something as simple as this club I was a part of, which was called Suspension Representation Clinic, where what we were doing were, were representing little kids, you know, anywhere from like six to 10 years old, were being suspended. Um, but I could just see that most of these kids were poor and most often brown or black. And for me, I was like, I just didn't, under, like I understood why this was happening. I knew disparities exist, but what I couldn't understand was the cruelty that these people were day-to-day -day confronting. So that was kind of my quest to really understanding the nature of bias in the mind. Um, have, you ever, have you ever experienced that on a personal level uh, as a younger man? 
absolutely. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I moved to the country when I was 10 and kind of. Sorry, I just want to clarify because I don't think it's clear. So you moved to to Britain when you were 10, right? Uh, To New York, actually. I'm from New York. I moved to New York when I was 10 and kind of grew up in New York City. And I think for me, um, I'm very like adaptable. So things often happen to me, but I would just like look the other way. But over time, I could see that there were subtle changes that I was experiencing uh, around feeling a sense of otherness. And that's what I could, that's why I could empathize with a lot of the people I was seeing in the courtroom, the defendant box. And as a nerd, for me, I was like, well, I need to figure this out. Um, and I'm, I say that word very proudly, like I love to study and I love to learn, not just study, I love to learn. And thankfully, you know, when I left New York after college, uh, when I moved to South Korea, I took on a pretty strong meditation practice. I was teaching at a school that had a meditation instructor and started learning a lot about the mind. It kind of went along with my kind of previous studies in neuroscience. And that kind of became my passion to study how the mind and the body works and the mind-body connection. So once I left law school and I practiced as a lawyer for a few years, you know, that passion for wanting to create like massive, to address like massive inequalities and injustices in our country, particularly based on like identity. So race is one, but gender is another. You know, I worked uh, at the UN for a summer on issues of women's rights and just was flabbergasted at the way just people's body parts, you know, that's what gender is at the one hand. And the story about these body parts creates such massive inequality. And when, when I looked at solutions that currently exist, I didn't feel satisfied by them. A lot of that were these big, you know, hazy cerebral ideas like, structural oppression, structural racism, patriarchy, misogyny. I'm not saying these ideas aren't correct or inaccurate. They are, but they don't offer solutions. So what can I do as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as a lawyer, as a scientist to address these issues in my life? Um, So that's basically what kind of took me on this quest. Incidentally, I met a lot of amazing people on the journey. And six years ago, I started Be More in order to really address this issue to help you know, professionals like me. So these are people that have studied, become very accomplished to be where they are, but give them science-based tools to measurably reduce bias in their decision-making. Um, and that's what we do, you know, with professionals, with companies, with a whole a whole different, like I think we started in healthcare primarily, but now we're in 12 different industries. I thought of a lot of the people I admired, you know, you know, anywhere from, you know, Gandhi to Mandela and like everybody talks about the law as an instrument for massive social change. And that's kind of why this idealistic young kid went to law school. But once I got to law school and afterwards I worked in the law, I realized that the law as it stands right now is not the problem. It's the people that are enforcing the law. For the most part, the law is pretty good. It doesn't, it never says that you need to discriminate against people of different right. color or people of different genders but it's the people that are enforcing these policies and practices who do. But again, these people don't wake up in the morning wanting to discriminate, right? Like how many doctors wake up in the morning being like, I'm gonna go and discriminate against black people today. Like rarely anybody. But this is where the nature of stereotyping in the mind and unconscious bias really comes in. And they want solutions, but they don't have it. So your intervention and the intervention of being more is in the, in the spirit, I guess, the mind of the oppressor and not, yeah. the, not, the, not the victim. Sure, sure, exactly. Because I'm one of them, not the oppressor, but I am a professional, right? So I can relate to doctors, I can relate to scientists, I can relate to lawyers, I can relate to teachers. And I know that like me, they've most of them, vast majority of them have worked very hard to be where they are. 
and to serve other people. But oftentimes their decisions, you know, when made without consciousness, can have a very, very deleterious effect on the lives of people, you know, that they're trying to actually positively affect. So for example, there's been over 30 years of research that has shown that, you know, periodically black patients receive lower doses of pain medication. Now that's because um, the doctors are biased towards them, but because there is a stereotypical association between dark skin and pain threshold. So when people are making facial expressions, sometimes those expressions aren't recognized by the doctors. So now the one thing is, oh, wow, this might be a you know challenge around color. That's only a white and black issue. But actually, a majority of African-American doctors or African-Americans in general also have these implicit biases towards other African-Americans. There's actually a study that was done by some Italian scientists where they showed like a hand being pierced by a needle. Mm -hmm. They were trying to record um, what the responses were in, in the viewers. They could see that um, when the, the hand was lighter skin, the response was different. They felt more pain, like in terms of empathy versus when it was darker. It's known as the racial empathy gap. Now, all of these things are learned. So again, for me, the way I describe bias is a learned habit of thought that distorts how we perceive, reason, remember, and make decisions. But just as it's learned, it can be relearned. It could be unlearned. And that's what we train people in doing. So can you illustrate a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit more specifically, how, how do you do that? Sure. Yeah. Basically, that's exactly what the last six years have been about for us is really developing a methodology to do that. You know, I thought all the research that's out there has already done this. But I went and talked to the researchers like, hey, you guys have figured out, you know, these interventions. Why aren't they being applied? And the academics told me, well, yes, we tested them and we wrote about them and then we moved on. That was like 10 years ago. <laughs> if you want to apply them, feel free. You know, it's public information. So that's where entrepreneurship comes in. That's where solutions and you know, solution creation is important. So what we did was kind of really brought together and synthesized the best of multidisciplinary research in one framework to help professionals learn these habits of thoughts. It takes about eight weeks of daily practice to adopt a new habit. So for us, the aspiration is eight weeks of daily practice to help people break this habit of bias, particularly when we think about identity-based bias, so racial and gender bias, um, and then, of course, moving on to other forms of biases as well. So how does that translate in an improved bottom line for an, for an organization? Great question. Actually, there's three ways this actually impacts. Um, the way implicit bias and bias in general affects organizations, corporations, healthcare organizations, schools, police departments, workplace. Second is service delivery. The third is product development. So I'll talk about all three of them. In terms of the workplace, there's a huge push, you know, across the board, particularly in light of Me Too and a whole host of lawsuits that have come out that, you know, for example, female and other types of talent aren't recruited at the same level as other, you know, kind of more mainstream talent is. Well, there's a problem in recruitment, but then also in retention of that talent and advancement of that talent. So what's happening there is again, unconscious biases. You know, who is perceived to be a leader? Who is perceived to be accomplished? amongst the people that are making the decisions? How are the processes in place, you know, created with these biases in mind? You know, when we think about culture fit, what does that even mean, right? So like, that's really, you know, we want to be able to transform the workplace to reflect the populations uh, where these workplaces are. 
you know, so there's massive disparities of like people of color and women and like leadership roles, for example, across professions. So we can really transform the workplace by training those leaders in these tools to then make it more reflective and representative of the greater population, which is an aspiration too. How do you sell your services to your potential clients? In the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a massive push for an industry called diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a huge industry now. Um, pretty much every major corporation, every major healthcare system, every even nonprofit has a DEI officer whose goal is to ensure equity within the workplace. Um, there are historical roots to this, which I can go into another time of why this is happening. Um, but the idea is this is a huge priority. It's probably one of the five pillars of every major corporation in the world. You know, diversity, inclusion, representation. So that's the workplace stuff. But the other two things are just as important when it comes to why do they care about this? Um, why do companies care about this? And it's at the end of the day, for me, it's totally a bottom line issue. So in healthcare alone, we lose about $35 billion a year because of unconscious bias and medical errors. So when we think about what's happening in an, in a, in an interaction between a clinician and a patient, you know, unconscious bias creates an error in their decision-making, which then of course creates a chain of events that end up of course harming the patient, but also costing the healthcare system a lot more money, including you know, liability, legal liability for not being able to get you know, quality care. So that's what we call service delivery. There are massive costs of service delivery, and this happens in every profession. Doctor is one, but I don't know if you've seen like lots of um, you know kind of public PR disasters. Let's say Sephora, for example, or you know any big store where there's client-facing interaction, and that bias ends up creating a massive challenge. So that's service delivery. And third is product development, which is probably the most important challenge that we face in the face of you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all these algorithms that are now going, that already are, but are going to rapidly be deciding how people make decisions. Um, so if you think about last year, um, you know, Barclays Bank, in collaboration with Apple, released a credit card, um, which you know, pretty soon after it was released, was determined to give lower credit ratings to women and credit worthiness to women candidates than men. And this actually happened to be the case across the board, even when married couples were applying. So the husband with the share assets was getting more credit um, than his wife. So that's a huge bias. Of course, um, the government is now looking into investigating it because this is a clear and case. That's even, and that's even if uh, in, in cases where uh, both spouses worked and had yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. income independently. One of the executives at Apple himself tweeted about this case. He's like, hey, yeah, like my wife is getting um, a credit limit that's 10 times lower than mine. So this is a egregious case of that. So, but why is that happening now? The engineers that built this algorithm, they're not like, oh, we're gonna make sure that women are not getting, they're not. They have these implicit biases. And now that and those implicit biases are being built into the code of these algorithms, right? So this is quite scary, particularly when we think about how healthcare, education, um, you know, policing, surveillance is going to be monitored by these algorithms. So it's really, really important um, that we address this, not only from an equity perspective, but also from a perspective of profits. 
because now this credit card is a product, it's a defunct product. Unless they fix this problem, no one's gonna get on that credit card, right? So this is where where like it needs to be rapidly addressed across the board. And that's actually the vast majority of bias in our society right now. I mean, of course, there are consciously biased people, more and more of them we're seeing on TV, people are reporting on them. But most people are like you and I, we wanna do the right thing all the time. But, you know, our mind has been conditioned to think a certain way about certain people. Mm. So the idea is we can neutralize that through these tools. And the, the benefit of that is not just to reduce bias for all you know, the bottom line and improve, but also improvement in personal well-being. So management of stress, of anxiety, and a whole host of mental, mental health challenges that employees face across companies. So about 70% of American employees are not engaged in their work at all, you know, based on a Gallup poll from two years ago, which is a huge number, you know? But the reason why they're not engaged is not related necessarily to bias, is it? Mm -mm. It, it could be, it could be aggregating, right? It's one of the challenges. That's why the intervention that breaks bias, which are these mindfulness-based tools, we call them PRISM, they're five tools. Um, of course, they help you recognize bias and break bias. But right. in that same process, as you're breaking bias, you're improving. You're also, yeah, you're also better able to manage your emotions. You're becoming more aware of how you're feeling day to day, so you can actually improve your personal well-being. So those uh, issues of bias obviously exist in non-corporate environments, non-corporate uh, communities. Sure. Um, how would your company uh, intervene there? Do you have uh, a plan to begin intervening in actual human communities outside the corporate world? Or do you plan to stay with corporate organizations? So we've done that. I mean, we've worked with a lot of different nonprofits from like um, nonprofits that work with, with youth, on education development, arts nonprofits. Um, so I guess for us, we don't have a preference anymore on who we work with. We've worked with museums, we've worked with the fire department of New York. Um, for us, what's important is that they're committed to doing this work and they wanna do this work. It's not just something they're window dressing. So we're kind of at the early stage, right? We're, so we're basically reaching after our early adopters, which come from 12 different industries right now. Um, my hope is that once we're able to create a critical mass of organizations, this particular methodology can just be democratized. It could be part of every school, it could be part of every college, you know, so everybody has access to these tools, like, and we can really then begin to unleash the full potential of every human being. Um, there's no reason why there's so much doubt and conflict in the workplace, because we have the resources, we have the skills, to both understand why conflict arises and how to resolve it. It's just that in the last 30 years, we haven't applied these skills. So that's what we don't want to do. So you mentioned to me before we started uh, that you're developing a tool and an artificial intelligence app, uh, sorry, artificial intelligence uh, tool. Um, can you tell me a little more about that? Sure, so basically the way or for me, like I'm very like data driven because I'm like, this this is not fluff. Like we were funded by the National Science Foundation to build kind of the early beta for this particular organization. And the NSF for me was like, once we get that seam of like a seal of approval, I know that this is hard science. You know, I'm the principal investigator on that study, we completed the study. Like we're not making this up. This is hard science. And the way we kind of pursued this was we want to create 
what are the data points? What is the journey of breaking bias? So we built a three-stage journey, learn, develop, propel. Learn is learning all the left brain, you know, knowledge, skills um, about bias and why it exists and how it impacts people. So there are different competencies associated that, with that. So once you learn it, you still need to develop the skills themselves, right? So it's not like, you know, I know that I need to exercise every day. It's going to be good for my health, but I also need to develop the habit of exercising. If I know and imagine myself exercising, that's not going to give me any benefit. So that's why develop is really important. That requires daily practice. And then when that happens in a kind of a, in a group, in a company or an organization, we propel performance because then everybody is doing it together. So then we can really unleash the total output uh, in an organization. So we kind of built this methodology from that. And um, as the content expert on this issue, we have so much content. I've trained over 15,000 professionals at 200 companies, anywhere from Amazon to IBM to PBS. And so now I know different types of learners that exist. So what we want to do moving forward with this beta technology we built with NSF funding is to actually build an entire um, learning system, like a learning platform um, that can assess where a, learn where a learner is on their learning journey. So for example, you got on this app, you know, by asking a few questions, we can assess what you need right now. Right. And then give you exactly the curated content and the skills you need to develop to work on your journey of, you know, be more. Whereas I will get a different, you know, kind of a curriculum because of those same assessments tools. And for me, that's really important because, you know, most of the programs I've delivered in, uh, have been in person. We actually have some online programs too, but again, they're very much one size fits all. So for some people, what we deliver is like very, very advanced. They're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. This is like life-changing for me, great. Um, for others, like, oh yeah, I already know this, right? Like for example, you said, well, this is not new. Like, you know, discrimination has been happening since like the 1930s. But for a lot of people, that's like mind changed, like, you know, mind blowing. So for us, then we can assess where people are so they can be on their individualized journey. Um, so that's why the AI is so important for us kind of moving forward. And at which stage are you now? Is it just, you said it's beta, but uh, to what yeah. extent has it been developed? Well, so the, the free version of the app is actually available. It's on the App Store. It's also on Google Play. It's called Be More Light, L-I-T-E. So we've actually just released it for demonstration purposes. So people can see and play with it. Uh, we tested it last year with about 100 doctors and some other professionals um, just to demonstrate that we can use kind of mobile technology to teach people these skills. Um, so that just ended at the end of last year. So, and then since last year, COVID hit. Um, so I think I'm in the process of, you know, really building, um, kind of going to investors and potential other partners to really build us out um, and then test it in the next year or two. So our objective now is to really show efficacy, that it does kind of reduce costs, you know, improve the bottom line, and of course, creates more equity. Is your aspiration to transition uh, fully into a technology, co a technology company, or do you plan in the future to remain a consultancy? Yeah, I mean, I'm a teacher by heart. Like, if I think about all the things I've done, it's always been around education. Like, I just love teaching and kind of being with people. So I can't imagine not staying as an educator. Like, I want to deliver more trainings. Like, I just love doing that. I want people contact. Um, so I think that's something that will continue to be. 
with that said, I think the technology is going to help us really scale our methodology. Right. So I was going to say what you're describing to me, at least sounds like you want to maintain a small scale for your organization. Well, for the company itself, no. Um, I think, I don't know, actually, we'll see where it goes. You never know what's happening in the future, but basically for me personally, I still want to be working with people, but I'm just one person in my company, right? Um, but I want to make sure that our company can have a global effect. Mm -hmm. Right now we've tested it here, but you know, we've had requests from Canada, from France, from Australia, from New Zealand, from South Africa, where these issues are just as present, if not more. I visited Lebanon last year, and these issues certainly have come up all the time. Um, but there it's not, it's by gender, but then around religious differences, political differences. So again, we can adapt it to different cultures. You know, in South America, my gosh, I was in Colombia last year in Ecuador, I was doing some field work. The issues around race and gender are so, so pronounced, right? So again, but then companies there too want solutions. They're not like, hey, if you want to discriminate against women, you want to do the right thing, how do we do it? This was excellent. I thank you so much for, for this conversation. Well, this is exciting. I'm so I'm so glad you reached out. You know, I just if anybody's interested, you know, check us out at bemoreamerica.org. More and folks can also follow us. You know, you can follow me um, on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at growwithanu. Um, and the company's is at Be More America. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Anu. Yeah, thank you. This is exciting. <laughs>